Today's scripture reading is from the book of 1 Peter, chapter 5. So I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that's going to be revealed. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. By Silvanus, a faithful brother, as I regard him, I have written briefly to you, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. She who is at Babylon, who is likewise chosen, sends you greetings, and so does Mark, my son. Greet one another with the kiss of love. Peace to all of you who are in Christ. Amen. Amen. Please, Harvest, you may be seated. Are you soggy this morning? Praise the Lord that we are all here. I told the uh, worship team a few minutes ago when we were praying that I'm on fire this morning. And Brandon said, well, then we need to put you outside. (laughs) You know, I've always been intrigued by the last words that leaders tell their troops before they go into battle. There's several movies that capture this well. I'm sure you think of movies like Braveheart or Gladiator or even The Lord of the Rings. But you know, there's a lot of historical moments from George Washington and Abraham Lincoln, Napoleon Bonaparte, Winston Churchill, speeches that great leaders gave before sending troops off into battle. Sometimes the last thing that soldiers hear is inspiring enough for them to turn the tide of the war. We are wrapping up First Peter this morning. It's been an amazing journey, and we have been reminded of our living hope in Jesus Christ. We've been reminded that this life is not ultimate. Jesus is coming, and Peter has been encouraging our hearts with that truth. He's also called us to prepare our minds for action, to be sober-minded, to love one another, abstain from the passions of the flesh, to keep our conduct among unbelievers honorable, to be subject to human institutions to rightly relate to our spouses, to be prepared to defend our faith, to endure suffering as Christ did, to not be surprised by persecution, and to entrust ourselves to God. 
This morning, Peter gives three final commands to follow, even in the midst of suffering. Suffering does not alter our responsibilities as God's people. As you are aware, persecution and suffering are dominant in this letter. We've seen them all through the letter. The dispersion that Peter wrote to experience these things in extreme ways. As yet, we here in America do not have to suffer to that extreme. But we do suffer. We do suffer as Christians. And I don't think we should make light of it. A day may come when we suffer to the extreme that they did, but we still suffer. At the end of chapter 4, Peter tells us, he says, he calls us to entrust our souls to a faithful creator while doing good, even if we should suffer for it. And it's with that thought that we enter into the final chapter. Again, I want to give you three final commands from 1 Peter 5 that should never change no matter our circumstances. The commands that Peter gives are to be practiced no matter what happens. So please follow along with me as I read chapter 5, beginning in verse 1. So I exhort the elders among you, as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker of the, of the glory that is going to be revealed, shepherd the flock of God that is among you. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you. As you all face persecution, shepherd the flock of God. In these uncertain times, Shepherd the flock of God. Though you don't know what tomorrow may bring, and it could bring something truly awful, shepherd the flock of God. Peter has been telling us over and over how to respond to persecution. And last week we saw how we should trust God even in the midst of it. Persecution does not change the mission or the structure of the church. And that leads us to our first point. Three final commands in the midst of suffering. Number one, rightly relate to one another. Rightly relate to one another. Now, obviously, as we read this passage, you notice right away that it speaks to the church leaders, to elders. But I want you to know that there's two sides to this passage. It does speak to the church, church leaders, but it also speaks to the church followers. And although there's direct application for church leaders, there's also application for church followers. So don't tune out. If you think to yourself, I'm not a church leader, this doesn't apply to me, wait. Because there are applications that we can draw out of this that do apply to each Christian. Church leaders and church followers, how do the two rightly relate to each other? Let's address the church leaders first. A number of years ago, the elders at this church actually challenged each other to memorize this passage because it outlines exactly how to, to shepherd the flock of God. Notice the first thing Peter says, he identifies with them as elders. And let me clarify before I go on. The word elder, of course it can mean an older person, 
But that's not how Peter's using it. He's using it here to refer to the office of the elder, to the church leader. He says, So I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder. As a fellow elder. You know, it occurred to me this week, what did Peter do before he was a church leader? He followed Jesus around. Okay? What did he do before that? He was a fisherman. Do you think that Peter had any inkling that he was going to be a major figurehead to the greatest religion ever? Not a chance. He was a fisherman. His life was going to be simple. Wake up, go fishing, untangle the nets, go to bed. That was going to be his life. Until Jesus. Until Jesus changed everything. Here in our text, some decades after Peter left his boat and followed Christ, he's writing as a fellow church elder. And doesn't that mean something to you? Doesn't it mean something to you when someone speaks truth to you who has been in your shoes? Doesn't it mean more when you hear a word from someone who knows what your life is like? Doesn't it add weight to their words? And don't you appreciate it more? He says, fellow elders. He says, I'm speaking to you as an elder. Here is your job, even in the midst of suffering, shepherd. Now that word for shepherd there, that means to watch out for other people in in the sense of watching over other people. Elders at Harvest Decatur, this is our job. We watch out, we watch over other people. We lead them, we guide them, we love them. He identifies with being an elder, identifies with being a witness of what Christ went through. And then look at what he says. He says, as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. You know, all through this letter, Peter has been hitting on the theme of Christ's return. So listen up, Christian leaders and I include myself in this, one day you will receive your reward from Jesus Christ himself. And if that's not a motivation to lead well, I don't know what is. And by the way, this extends to all of you, Christians. You will be rewarded. You will be rewarded for your faithfulness. So let me just quickly challenge you, stay faithful. The end is near. I don't mean to sound like a guy with a sandwich board. But I believe. I don't know when. I have no idea, but I do believe the end is near. Stay faithful. So Peter says we are to shepherd the flock of God. And then he gives us three ways to do that. He gives us three ways to do that, contrasting with three ways not to. He says exercising oversight. That's the job of the elder. We exercise oversight. We give attention to and care for the church. How do we do that? Not under compulsion, but willingly as God would have you. Not under compulsion, but willingly. In other words, elders are to exercise oversight not out of obligation. Not out of a, well, somebody's got to do it. That's not the attitude that we're going for. In fact, that's really just a sign of laziness. God doesn't want leaders who are there to fill slots. He wants leaders who are willing 
Warren Wearsby writes this. You can read this on the screen. When a man has a pastor's heart, he loves the sheep and serves them because he wants to, not because he has to. And that's the idea here. God wants leaders who serve willingly, and that word willingly means deliberately. It means intentionally. You know, one of the things years ago that drew many of you to plant a harvest church is because back then the fellowship, they did things intentionally. In fact, that word intentionally was often thrown around as one of the reasons why we love the harvest model. They do things intentionally. And that intention always goes back to Scripture. I once heard a pastor say, we don't play church. In other words, we're not up here just going through the motions. We are doing what we're doing because God's word tells us to, and there is reason behind it. Take unapologetic preaching. You've seen the four pillars laid out there in the foyer. Unapologetic preaching. Why do we do that? Because 2 Timothy 4.2 says, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. That's why we do it. Because God's word says so. And that, elders, is the way we are to lead. We are to lead intentionally. We shepherd the flock of God with the intention of making mature disciples. That's the goal. Always has been. So exercise oversight willingly. Secondly, he says exercise oversight eagerly. He says not for shameful gain, but eagerly. That term shameful gain there, that means dishonest gain. Now, it's common in our day that pastors are compensated for their work. Paul commends that in 1 Timothy 5.17. It was even common in the early church that some of the elders received compensation for their work. That's not what's being condemned here. What's being condemned here is leaders being motivated by money. In it for the sweet green. That's not the kind of leader you want. If a leader is leading because of the financial gain, their motivation is in the wrong place. And they can't exercise oversight eagerly. Eagerly, that word refers to leaders who desire to meet needs. Leaders should lead out of a desire to meet needs. That should be the motivation. So he says, exercise oversight willingly, eagerly, and then finally... Verse 3, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. Now, domineering is the idea of, of being like a master. It's subduing. It's lording over. And that's not how a pastor or an elder should lead. That's not rightly relating to one another. Yes, elders are given authority. We are told in the book of Titus that the elders are God's stewards and they should be able to give instruction and sound doctrine and to rebuke those who contradict it. They have authority. And our elders here at Harvest Decatur have authority. We oversee doctrine, direction, and discipline. That's our responsibility. We have great authority that's bestowed on us, by the way, by our chief shepherd. But it is not to be exercised in a domineering way. Rather, Peter says, but being examples to the flock. Lead by example. My father spent 20 years in the military, and that's like a military mantra. I heard it everywhere we went, lead by example, 
lead by example. And I believe that's the right format for leadership. And by the way, this is pictured beautifully by shepherds. In, ancient world, in the ancient world, and even today, shepherds don't drive their sheep from behind like a cowboy would cattle. Shepherds lead in front, calling to their sheep. It's a beautiful picture of Jesus and how he leads us out in front, calling to us. And that's how elders are supposed to lead by example, out in front of the sheep. Now, we've been focusing on elders for the most part, but I don't want you to miss the applications here that are for all of us. All of us need to benefit from this passage. Every bit of the Bible is beneficial to you and is necessary for you. It is talking to direct, directly to elders, yes, but there are many different kinds of leaders. There are many different kinds of Christian leaders, and I would argue that every Christian is a leader in some way. It could be big, out in front, public. It could be small, behind the scenes. But I do believe that every Christian is a leader in some way. Of course, fathers and mothers are leaders. Siblings are leaders to each other. Christians are leaders in the workforce, in the classroom, and in their neighborhoods. Some way, somehow, God is calling you to be a leader. How could he be calling you? So lead like this. Lead willingly, lead eagerly, and lead by example. And if I just might take a moment, I want to make a special challenge to the men in this room. Men, you may not be a church elder. You may never be a church elder but you should aspire to lead with these same qualities in whatever sphere of influence God has given you. Men, lead your families willingly, eagerly, and by example. Now, you might be reading through this and going, why? Why should we aspire to lead like this? Why should we work this hard? Verse 4. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. The chief shepherd. I love that term. In chapter 1, Peter hinted at Jesus' return. Remember that Peter saw Jesus' ascension. In fact, the book of Acts tells us that the disciples were watching Jesus being lifted into the air until he disappeared. And the sight, angels were amazing. They just stood there for who knows how long, staring into the sky, till two angels had to come down and say, Stop! He saw that. Peter knows that the chief shepherd is coming back in the same way that he went into heaven. The chief shepherd is coming back and he will reward those who exercise oversight well. Why should we aspire to lead well? Because our, sh our chief shepherd will reward us. He's going to reward us with the unfading crown of glory. Now, you know, in the first century world, they would give crowns to winners. And they were made out of shrubs, branches, plants. They withered. But when your chief shepherd appears to reward you, he will give you the crown that 
does not wither. A crown that you will wear that will be a mark of your faithfulness to him forever. The word received here was used of a laborer receiving their wages. And just like in the ancient world, shepherds would get paid for their work, church leaders, church followers will be rewarded for doing their work well. Anyone who has been faithful to God will be rewarded. Payday's coming. So lead willingly, eagerly, and as a good example to others. Now follow along as I read verse 5. Peter writes, Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Back to the point, rightly relate to one another. That's our point. We've discussed church leaders. Let's focus on church followers here. He says, likewise, which that word should remind us of chapter 3. Peter used the same word when he was referring to how wives should be subject to their husbands. He says, in the same way, you who are younger be subject to the elders. Now, I clarified earlier that elders here is a reference to the office of elder, not necessarily an older person. So it's interesting that Peter chooses to use the word we translate as younger because in the Greek, it does refer to younger people. Why would Peter address the younger crowd? Why would not he address everyone in the church? I mean, surely there were people who were older that did not hold the office of elder, so why pick on the younger people? Wayne Grudem clears this up when he writes this. You can read this on the screen. It is probably because the younger people were generally those who would most need a reminder to be submissive to authority within the church. This would not imply that the others were free to rebel against the elders, but quite the opposite. If those who are likely to be most independent-minded and even at times rebellious against church leaders are commanded to be subject to the elders, then it follows that certainly everyone else must be subject to the elders as well. To rightly relate to one another, we, it must include submission. It must include submission to church leadership. The idea of submission, of course, is all through the New Testament. We are told to submit to human institutions, to governing authorities, slaves to masters, wives to husbands, to each other, and ultimately to God. What happens if we do not submit in these ways? Anarchy. Cities can't survive without submission. Businesses can't survive without submission. Churches can't survive without submission. Marriages can't survive without submission. It's fundamental to the survival of all these things. And I know there are times when submitting to a human institution compromises obedience to God, and in those moments, obey God rather than man. But that should be the exception, not the norm. Rightly relate to one another, and the church will endure even through persecution. Lastly, Peter writes this, clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another, for God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Within this idea of rightly relating to one another, elder and congregant alike should relate to each other with humility. He says, clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. And that is beautiful. The specific word for clothe here is the idea of a servant tying on an apron to protect their clothes. 
wear humility because humility protects relationships. Humility is an attitude that puts others first. Interestingly enough, Peter's going against the cultural norm of his day. In the Greco-Roman world, humility was not something that was considered virtuous. To be humble was to go against social expectations. And as Christians, we are often called to do that. Being humble is not a popular idea, even in our time. But Scripture calls us to a life of lowly-mindedness, of humility. Why? Because pride destroys. And you know that. And you've experienced that. Perhaps it was your own pride. Perhaps it was somebody else's pride. But you, everyone in this room, has been victims of how pride has destroyed. So be humble toward one another, elder and congregant alike, and that will shield us from what would otherwise cause irreparable damage. Rightly relate to one another. So let me ask, how are you doing in that area? You know, it's, it's so easy to get caught up in ourselves, isn't it? It's so easy to get caught up in our own thoughts, in our own ideas, in our own goals, in our own passions, in our own agendas, that we forget about other people. So let me challenge the leaders in this room. What's in your hearts when you lead? Are you loving the flock or lording over the flock? Are you leading by example or leading by oppression? Are you seeking the good of others or the good of self? Let me challenge the followers in this room. Are you rightly relating to those in leadership over you? Are you submissive or demanding? Are you more concerned with harmony or with self? Is your heart one of humility or of ego? As Christians, seek to rightly relate to one another. That was the first command in the last three commands that Peter gives us. Here's the second command that Peter gives us. Point two, rightly relate to Almighty God. Rightly relate to Almighty God. Peter writes in verse 6, Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Resist him firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you to him. Be the, the dominion forever and ever. Amen. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God. Now remember, the recipients of this letter were in exile. They were facing persecution in the worst ways. And it would have been easy for them to declare, why God? Why are we facing such turbulent times? And Peter has said over and over how Christ suffered unjustly, and he's challenging them to face this suffering well. He's gone so far as to say, it might be God's will that you suffer for righteousness' sake. So humble yourselves. Humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God. Accept where he has you and what he's allowing to happen to you. By the way, the mighty hand of God was an Old Testament symbol of God's sovereign power. 
In Exodus 3, 19 and 20, God says to Moses, but I know the king of Egypt will not let you go unless compelled by a mighty hand. So I will stretch out my hand and strike Egypt with all the wonders that I will do in it. Humble yourselves, church. Accept what God is doing and take comfort in this. He's got you right where he wants you. So that at the proper time, he may exalt you. That word exalt means to cause enhancement. In other words, church, your situation, whatever you're going through, and many of you are going through hard things right now, whatever you're going through won't last forever. God will change it. God will enhance it. Peter is saying, in God's time, this persecution will pass. Maybe on earth, certainly in glory. Either way, God will exalt you and church whatever you may be facing now. This will pass. Maybe on earth, certainly in glory. Humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God. When he's ready, he will change your circumstances. Rightly relating to God Almighty, humbling ourselves to God Almighty. Now, what does that specifically look like? It looks like three things. Follow along with me in the text. Verse seven, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Humbling ourselves to God means casting our anxieties on him. That word casting literally means to throw something onto something. Take your burdens and toss them to the Lord. Why? Because he cares for you. Which is a good reminder when we're suffering that he cares for us. So cast your anxieties on him, which means open your mouth and share things with the Lord. You might stop and think, well, the Lord knows everything. Yes, he knows everything. But he cares for you. He wants intimacy with you. And if you open your mouth and share with him the things that are going on and you pray for the strength that you need and the endurance that you need to persevere through this, that intimacy will carry you through. Open your mouth and communicate. Don't be afraid to share your fears with God. He invites you to talk with him. By the way, do you see how verse 7 is just a continuation of verse 6? They're not two separate sentences. What does that mean? That means, just as we've been saying, to humble ourselves is to cast our anxieties on him. How is that? Because when we are casting our anxieties on him, we're acknowledging that I'm too small for this. We're acknowledging that I need you. And furthermore, when we acknowledge to God our need of him by casting our anxieties on him, you know what that does? That frees us to love others. That frees our hearts and minds to love others because we're no longer concerned with ourselves. We've given that to the Lord and our minds and our emotions are free. Cast your anxieties to the Lord. Tim Keller defines anxieties like this. He says, anxiety is like saying to God, I don't think you have my best interest in mind. When we start struggling with anxiety, it's like we're saying to God, I don't think you've got my best interest in mind. 
take those anxieties and turn them over to the Lord who cares for you, who does have your best interests in mind. And that reestablishes our confidence in Jesus. So church, let me encourage you, preach to yourself. God's got this. Preach to yourself. He is in control. And no amount of fear, worry, or anxiety is going to change anything. It's in God's hands. So let me ask you, what do you hang on to? What causes anxious thoughts in you? In what ways are you failing to trust that God is in control? He's got this. Preach to yourselves. Rightly relating to God means casting our anxieties onto him, but it also means being aware of the spiritual battle. Join me in verse 8. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. There is a spiritual battle going on. And part of humbling ourselves under the mighty hand of God is acknowledging that there's something bigger than me out there. There's a spiritual battle going on. And believe me, beloved, we who are made of flesh and blood have no ability in and of ourselves to fight against Satan and his attacks. We don't have it. Alone, we are powerless. We are prey to be devoured. And by the way, Satan loves your anxiety. That's one of his ways he devours you. He's called the accuser of the brethren in Revelation 12.10. In the book of Job, we catch a glimpse of Satan's tactics. He accuses the righteous before the throne of God, trying to discredit God's people. Satan is constantly looking for opportunities to tempt you, to persecute you, and to discourage you. The struggle is real. And it is spiritual. Rightly relating to God is being aware of this spiritual struggle and resisting it. Peter writes, Be sober-minded. Be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Be sober-minded. Be watchful. That's be self-controlled and ready. Spiritual attacks are coming, and if you're not ready, he's going to rip you apart. He will tempt you into sin, he will persecute you into fear, and he will discourage you into giving up unless, verse 9, you resist him firm in your faith. Resist him firm in your faith. This passage is similar to James 4, 7, where he writes, submit yourselves therefore to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. How do we do this? How do we resist him firm in our faith? You know, Jesus offered the greatest example of this in Matthew 4 when he fought off Satan with Scripture. That's how we resist him, firm in our faith, that no matter what I'm feeling, no matter how I'm tempted, no matter the discouragement, I'm going to stand on what I know, not on what I feel. How do you prepare for Satan's attacks? Let me ask a question. How do soldiers prepare for battle? They train. They practice. They hone their firearm skills. They learn hand-to-hand combat. They learn how to coordinate together as a unit. 
We could learn a lot about spiritual warfare by watching our military. Hone your scripture memory. Learn to preach to your mind and heart God's truth and be accountable to a small group. He goes on to say, resist him firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. The same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. Don't go it alone. I was encouraged by a brother this week. Don't go it alone. We are all in this spiritual battle. Everyone in this room struggles against the enemy. And our brothers and sisters all around the world struggle and suffer. And as George pointed out last week, sometimes to the ultimate sacrifice. And I know we may not be there yet, but I also know that Satan is a roaring lion and he's attacking you. You're not alone. One of Satan's tactics, by the way, is to make you think that you are alone. Don't buy it. You're not alone in your struggle. Reach out to other people for support and prayer. We've been talking about rightly relating to God. It means casting our anxieties on him, recognizing that we're in a spiritual battle. Lastly, how do we rightly relate to God? It means to trust that he will restore you. Look at verse 10. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Take comfort in this, that in life we are not adrift like one at sea tossed about by waves of chance. God has a plan. And he's allowing you to go through whatever it is you're going through for his purposes to strengthen and refine you. He is in control. And after a little while, I know it seems when we are in the midst of something awful, it seems like it's taking forever, but in reality, it's only a little while. Christ himself will restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. Do you see where it says the God of all grace who has called you? That word called means to call by name. You are not just a sheep thrown half-heartedly, indistinguishably in the midst of a flock of other sheep. He knows you by name. Not only does he know you by name, but he's called you to his eternal glory. In other words, again, we're reminded that reward is coming, that our destiny is sure, that heaven awaits. Because of Christ, you are called by name, and your destiny is sure. It is guaranteed. The God who knows you by name, called you by name, guarantees your eternal destiny because of the work that Christ did. So he will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. In other words, he's going to make everything right. One way or another, on earth or in glory, he's going to make everything right. He's going to bring you through this. He's going to make you stronger. Why would he do all this? 
because he's the God of all grace. Is it any wonder that Peter ends this section with a doxology? To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. We're looking at three final commands that Peter gives from, first five, verse, uh, from chapter 5. Rightly relate to one another. Rightly relate to God. And finally, point three, remain in God's truth. Remain in God's truth. Peter finishes his letter. He says, By Silvanus, a faithful brother as I regard him, I have written briefly to you, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. She who is at Babylon, who is likewise chosen, sends you greetings. And so does Mark, my son. Greet one another with a kiss of love. Peace to all of you who are in Christ. Like Paul often did, Peter uses an amanuensis, a secretary. Peter dictated while Silvanus wrote down. And by the way, Silvanus is also known as Silas. You might remember that name. He traveled with Paul a number of times. And he may, by the way, he may have been the one to have delivered this letter of 1 Peter to the recipients. He, has, he says in verse 13, she who is at Babylon. Now that is most likely a reference to the church of the city of Rome. And there's some good reasons to believe that, that Paul is almost speaking in code about the church at Rome. There's some good reasons to believe that. First of all, Rome was referred to as Babylon in both Jewish and early Christian sources. Secondly, all through the book of 1 Peter, he's addressing the need for holiness. It would be an appropriate contrast to refer to Rome as Babylon, since Rome would have been considered the center of evil in the world at that time, just as Babylon had been the center of evil in the world during the time of the Jewish exile. Finally, Peter is writing to exiles who would have identified with the exiles who were exiled when King Nebuchadnezzar took, Jew, took uh, Jerusalem. So it seems to make a lot of sense that when he says, she who is at Rome, or she who is at Babylon, he's speaking about the church in Rome. Finally, he mentions Mark, and Mark, of course, you know, John Mark, a fellow Jew who traveled with Paul, who had abandoned them at one time, but then later was restored. All of these send their greetings. It was a typical way to end letters in the first century. And then this letter ends with an encouragement to greet one another with a kiss of love. Now, this would have been a form of greeting among family members. You've probably seen it in movies, to kiss both sides of the cheek. Family members did that back then. So by suggesting a kiss of love, what he's suggesting here is that Christians are brothers and sisters in Christ. Now, perhaps I should say that at Harvest Decatur, in 2022, we'll take a handshake. But we are brothers and sisters in Christ. Different cultures, different times. I just want to stress for a moment the last part of verse 12. I initially skipped over. Go back to it with me. He says, I have written briefly to you, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. Remain in God's truth. Peter is referring here, by the way, to the entirety of his epistle. He's saying, this epistle that I've written to you, this is the true grace of God. He has exhorted the church to believe in right doctrine out of which should flow right behavior. So let's just quickly recap. Peter laid out the theme in chapter 1 by pointing us to Jesus Christ, 
who because of his resurrection is our living hope even in the midst of various trials. He has challenged his readers to suffer well knowing that Christ too suffered on our behalf. He is our great example. Peter reminds his readers often of the great inheritance to come and that suffering though necessary for a time is temporary and will yield great blessings. We have been challenged to trust and obey no matter what we are facing in this life, knowing that if we suffer for righteousness' sake, we are blessed. This is the true grace of God. And may I add by extension, this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. Remain in God's truth. Read it. Pray, follow him daily, stand firm in it. To stand firm is the idea of being established. Be established in God's truth. Maintain what you believe, church. Hold fast to the truth and don't be shaken even in the midst of suffering. Don't be shaken. Don't fall away. Don't be one of those who come to church, but there's no root. I heard a story this past summer. There was a youth speaker speaking to about 200 young people. And as he was speaking to them, he shared with them that if the statistics were true, only 10% of them would persevere. Only 10% of them would follow Christ all their lives. As he said that, one teenager stood up. And he stood there, and the guy kept teaching. And slowly, others started to stand in the crowd until about 20 out of the 200 were standing. And it got so distracting that the speaker had to stop, and he looked at the original boy who stood, and he said, why are you standing? And the boy said, I just want you to know, I'm one of the 10%. Be one of the 10%. I want everyone in this room to be one of the 10%. I know that doesn't make mathematical sense. But I want everyone in this room to be one of the 10%. Church, I don't know what's in the future. I do know things are going to get worse. And I personally believe that the kinds of extreme suffering experienced by churches in other parts of the world today will affect the church in the United States. So resolve now to remain in God's truth. Some people view Christianity as merely an addition to their lives. Church is what we do on Sundays, but there's no real conviction and there's no real change in their lives because there's no real relationship with God. People who believe like that are going to flee at the first sign of persecution. Don't be that kind of person. Christianity should not be a mere addition to our lives. It should dominate our lives. We should live and breathe our faith because it's the truth. What we hold dear is the very essence of true life. Don't leave it. Don't forsake it. Don't abandon it. Remain in God's truth no matter how hard life gets. This is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it, church. It is the grace of God that saves us, the grace of God that sustains us, and the grace of God that, pers that preserves us.
And by the way, it was out of the grace of God that Christ came, suffered, died, and rose. In the face of ultimate suffering, Jesus stood firm. He faced threats, guards, beatings, the cross, shame, and the wrath. And not once did he waver. Not once did he falter. Not once did he doubt his father. Do you remember when Peter, the very Peter that wrote this epistle, cut off Malchus' ear? Jesus responded in Matthew 26, 53, do you think that I cannot appeal to my father and he will at once send me more than 12 legions of angels? Jesus had the ability to call the whole thing off. At any time, he could have said, enough, I'm done, let humanity be doomed. But he didn't. Jesus stood firm. Jesus stood firm in the midst of ultimate suffering. Jesus stood firm and faced suffering that if you are in Christ, you will never have to face. That's our example, church. Not only is Jesus why we do what we do, he's how we do what we do. Because Jesus stood firm in God's church, in God's truth, we can also stand firm in God's truth. So trust your Savior, church. Trust your living hope. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you. Thank you that though you could have called it off at any time, you stood firm. Thank you that your love for us won the day. Lord, the life we live is a hard life. And we don't even experience the worst of it as some in our world do. Still we suffer. I pray that as we suffer, we remain true. We rightly relate to you. And we rightly relate to one another. I pray that through whatever we face as a church, we will face it well because our Savior faced his suffering well. We thank you, Jesus, and we pray these things in your awesome name. Amen.